For over 20 years, my family and I have lived in a quiet suburb just 25 miles north of Boston. It's easy to fall in love with the natural beauty of this area, and it's tempting to become lulled into complacency by the seemingly liberal bent of its population. But you don't need to dig too deeply to find evidence of the region's often ugly racial past. My town is only a suburb of Boston because after World War II, the government made extensive investments in highway infrastructure to connect the city's central arteries to outlying areas in every direction. But not everyone reaped the benefits of these investments. In a 1975 report titled Route 128, Road to Segregation, the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination detailed the extent of racial exclusion in Boston suburbs. The report examined the policies and practices of federal, state, and local government, as well as those of private employers, the housing industry, and private citizens. They concluded that, quote, federal and state fair housing laws have failed to open the suburbs to minority group citizens. As a result, Boston's Black and Puerto Rican populations remain in those sections of the city with the greatest proportion of deteriorating and dilapidated housing. The report went on to direct a majority of the blame for this inequity on, quote, suburban public officials and the local residents of suburban towns, who for the most part have sought to maintain the status quo and to preserve the character of their communities. Racial discrimination is baked into the neighborhoods and landscapes of Metro Boston, but it generally goes unacknowledged. Until, that is, something pops up in the news and puts a spotlight on the region's legacy of racism. And often, that something has to do with sports. In overtime of Game 7 of the 2012 Stanley Cup playoffs, Joel Ward, a black left-winger for the Washington Capitals, scored the game-winning goal against the Boston Bruins. Afterwards, Bruins fans took to Twitter with a flurry of racist tweets using the N-word. Or in June 2020, former Major League outfielder Tory Hunter gave several interviews detailing the racial abuse he endured when his teams played in Boston. Following Hunter's comments, the Red Sox put out a statement saying, Tory Hunter's experience is real. If you doubted him because you've never heard it yourself, take it from us, it happens. Last year, there were seven reported incidents at Fenway Park where fans used racial slurs. Those are just the ones we know about. And it's not only players. It happens to the dedicated black employees who work for us on game days. Their uniforms may be different, but their voices and experiences are just as important. We are grateful to anyone who has spoken up and remain committed to using our platform to amplify the many voices who are calling out injustice. The experiences of Joel Ward and Tori Hunter tell us that race continues to be a major part of black athletes' careers. And of course, this isn't just a Boston problem. No matter the location, racist name-calling and offensive stereotypes often go hand-in-hand with criticisms of players. When Serena Williams became visibly frustrated during the 2018 U.S. Open, an Australian newspaper published a political cartoon depicting Williams in a tantrum. The distinctly unfeminine caricature of Williams resembled racist stereotypes of the Jim Crow era. And while Williams was playing against Naomi Osaka, whose parents are Haitian and Japanese, the cartoon portrayed her opponent as white and blonde. The contrast only underscored the racist stereotype of an angry and masculine black woman. 
While the spotlight can make black athletes lightning rods for abuse, some have used it to become agents of change. Many black athletes have paired sport with movements for social justice. But this often comes with mixed results. When NBA stars like Derrick Rose, LeBron James, and Kobe Bryant wore I Can't Breathe shirts in both 2014 and 2020 to protest the killings of Eric Garner and George Floyd, there was little outcry and tepid support from the NBA. But things looked very different when members of the St. Louis Rams came onto the field in 2014 with a hands-up, don't-shoot gesture to protest the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. In response, the St. Louis Police Officers Association tried to link the players' peaceful protest with violence in the city. They issued a statement saying, I'd remind the NFL and their players that it is not the violent thugs burning down buildings that buy their advertisers' products. It's cops and the good people of St. Louis and other NFL towns that do. Somebody needs to throw a flag on this play. If it's not the NFL and the Rams, then it'll be cops and their supporters. Later, about two dozen Rams fans gathered at a local bar to burn their Rams gear in protest. And do we even need to talk about Colin Kaepernick? In 2016, Kaepernick refused to stand for the national anthem, saying, I'm not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. Colin Kaepernick was released by the San Francisco 49ers in 2017 and hasn't played for an NFL team since. Black athletes play in every major sport and are many of the nation's most beloved stars, even as they experience prejudice and discrimination. So when it comes to black athletes and the larger American public, well, it's complicated. And it will probably come as no surprise when I say that the complicated relationship between black athletes, professional sports and sports fans, and the black freedom struggle isn't new. And we can look to the era of Jim Crow to understand its origins. I'm Bethany J, and this is Teaching Hard History. We're a production of Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center. This season, we're offering a detailed look at how to teach the history of Jim Crow, starting with Reconstruction. In each episode, we explore a different topic, walking you through historical concepts, raising questions for discussion, suggesting useful source material, and offering practical classroom exercises. Sports gives us a lens into how Black Americans carved spaces and opportunities for themselves and their communities. In the United States, Black athletes have had to contend with two sets of rules, those of the game and those of a racist society. While they dealt with the realities of breaking the color line and the politics of respectability, Black fans, educational institutions, and the Black press were building sporting congregations with their own wealth and energy. Historians Derek White and Lewis Moore are hosts of the podcast, The Black Athlete. In this episode, they discuss sports during the Jim Crow era with my co-host, Hassan Kwame Jeffries, examining how these great men and women worked to create a more just future, both on the field and off. I'm so glad you can join us. Let's get started. All right, everybody. I'm not going to lie. I've been looking forward to this episode the entire season. We're going to talk sports. We talk sports during the Jim Crow era. We're going to talk the color line. And we have the two best people that I can imagine to talk about it with us. 
Derek, Lou, welcome to the podcast. So glad you could join us. Excited to be here, man. Ah, uh, thank you for having us. It's great. I, I've been waiting for this moment. Of course. Look, I want. I want. I want to dive right in. When we often talk about the Jim Crow era and race and sports, the conversation usually starts and ends with Jackie Robinson in the 1940s. But I, I don't want to start there. I want to begin at the turn of the 20th century, and I want to begin with Jack Johnson uh, because, in a many, in many ways. He really represents not only the accomplishments, the the hopes and aspirations of African-Americans at that moment, but also the challenges that black folk are facing and will face, uh, not only with regard to the color line in sports, but with regard to the color line in America for the next three quarters of the century. Lou, could you tell us a little bit about who Jack Johnson was. Yeah, at, you know, at its most basic, Jack Johnson is the first black heavyweight champion of the world uh, from 1908 to 1915. But to to dig into his life is is really a conversation about America at the turn of the century during, you know, during the progressive era. So so Jack Johnson was born the, the son of ex-slaves or formerly enslaved folks in 1878, gets into boxing as a, as a teenager, a number of black men made that same decision because the market economy for them at that time was just like absolute zero, right? Your your options was maybe get a factory job, be a sharecropper if you're in the South, and, and that's it. So these guys who had the discipline to actually learn how to fight, they became professional fighters. In 1903, Jack Johnson becomes what, what we would call the colored heavyweight champion. They started a color heavyweight title back in 1882, and that's because John L. Sullivan, the Irish-American, when he wins the heavyweight championship, says, you know what, I'm not going to fight a black person, right? Because at that time, the championship really meant racial superiority. And so for almost 20 years, that's it for black guys. And then Jack Johnson comes around and in 1903, he's the color heavyweight champion. And he has this idea. He says, you know what? This is not good enough for me. I'm the best fighter in the world and I want to fight for the championship. In 1905, this fighter, Jim Jeffries, and, and we'll come back to him in a bit, but Jim Jeffries uh, retires undefeated. He's a white guy, and he essentially says, you know what? There are no more good white fighters to fight, and, and he's right. There's no more good white, white fighters to fight, so I'm going to retire. And after that, some you know terrible heavyweights have the championships, and Jack Johnson literally follows them around trying to get a fight. And finally, he gets to Tommy Burns. And Tommy Burns is, you know, he was racist. And, you know, when he made this fight in 1908 to fight Jack Johnson, it's going to be in Sydney, Australia, you know, December 26. It's it's a huge fight. And he's telling people that I'm going to beat Jack Johnson because he's black. And he says, look, the science tells me that black people have hard skulls. So I'm not going to hit him in the head. I'm going to hit him in the sub stomach. He also says that black people by their nature are scared, right? They have this yellow streak. And this is something we would have heard in, in the Civil War or the Spanish-American War, this idea that they don't fight, they flee. Jack Johnson hears all of this and uses this against Tommy Burns. In this fight in 1908, he's literally laughing at Tommy Burns, asking him to hit him in the stomach. And then eventually he knocks him out. But here's how Jack Johnson resonates with folks. To this day, we don't get to see that knockout because a police officer in Sydney, Australia, stops the filming of the fight. He realizes, you know, at a time of colonialism and imperialism, having a black man knock out a white guy for the heavyweight championship of the world is 
that bad of a, a visual to see that nobody should see it. And the very next day, a famous American writer, Jack London, he writes this open letter to Jim Jeffries in a San Francisco newspaper that Jim Jeffrey has to come out of retirement, right? He has to knock the golden smile out of Jack Johnson's face. And he ends it with like, Jeff, it's up to you. At that moment, he creates this idea, there's a white hope. And why do we need one? It's not simply that Jack Johnson's the heavyweight champion, right? It's not simply that, you know, white fighters like, like John L. Sullivan or Jim Jeffries and then the white media and white fans have attached this idea of racial superiority to the belt. It's Jack Johnson lived his life as a free black man at a time where every four days a black man lynched. And what do I mean by a free black man? He wore what he wanted, right? Fur coats, diamonds in his lapels, canes, had gold in his teeth, right? Had the fastest cars, frequently got speeding tickets. On top of that, Jack Johnson openly dated white women. And, and sometimes it's three at a time, right? He'd show up with them at various hotels. <laughs> hey, one, one wasn't enough for Jack Johnson. No, no, no. Like three, four coming to the hotel. And, you know, he married a few, right? Not at the, He didn't marry a few at the same time. That would have been illegal. But, you know, one after the other. And white America could, couldn't stand that, right? They couldn't stand him, the individual, because he acted like a free man. But they were just as concerned of, of, you know, other black men acting that way. And so they did everything they could to, to find what they called a white hope, somebody to defeat Jack Johnson. For a year, they begged Jim Jeffries, right? The, the media, people around him to come out of retirement and, and fight Jack Johnson. And, and as they say, save the white race. And at first, Jeffries was saying, no, right? I'm out of shape. And he was, he's 300 pounds. He's an alfalfa farmer in Burbank, California. He shouldn't be fighting. But the pressure got to him by the end of 1909. He says, you know what? I'll do this for the race. It's going to be the biggest fight ever. And still to this day, it's, I think in America, it has the most you know, consequences. They scheduled the fight July 4th, 1910. They're supposed to fight in, in Emeryville, California, which is right outside of San Francisco. And the California governor is so worried that he actually bans boxing in the state. He's like, I can't have this in my state. So, of course, they moved to Nevada. They had to fight in Reno, Nevada. July 4th, 1910, Jack Johnson easily beats Jim Jeffries, right? He has no business being in the ring after five years of retirement. That day is the single largest day in American history when it comes to race riots and violence, right? We, we call the massacres now until April 4th, 1968, when, when Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated in Memphis. Mm -hmm. I do have a story map um, that I've created an online story map of all the, the riots that took place after the fight that students can go through and, and see where all these places are where black people were killed for, for cheering for Jack Johnson. There's nearly 20 black people killed. There's one black lady who has her tongue shot out for, for cheering for Jack Johnson. Newspapers across the country wrote editorials to black people about knowing your place. Don't think you're Jack Johnson, right? The mayor in Memphis bans boxing. He says we need black people in the field, not as fighters. States across the country banned the film from being shown. There's countries across the world that did the same thing. That's how big that fight was. No, I want to bring Derek into the into the conversation. You know, when you think of of Jack Johnson. As Lou was pointing out, I mean, we're talking about black manhood, black power, black freedom, black independence, black determination. 
I mean, it seems that in the classroom, for sure, there's a lot of points of entry to these broader subjects that we can engage in by teaching and talking about Jack Johnson. Yeah, I think Jack Johnson's rise to the heavyweight championship comes at a very poignant moment in African-American history. Uh, the great historian Rayford Logan talks about this period between the end of Reconstruction and the 1920s as the nadir, as the lowest point in African-American history, as black folks uh, have very few allies, right? They're, they're enemies in the South, right, are trying to keep them tied to plantations and farming and, and, and through lynching and, and mass incarceration. There's former allies, the Republicans in the North have forgotten about them, more concerned with broader economic issues. And so black folks are really forced to do for themselves in this particular moment, right? And so it's in this time frame that we see someone like Jack Johnson ascend to the heavyweight championship. And so his his victory in the ring, and as Lou said, his notion of living as a free black man was inspirational for all. African-Americans who sought uh, what Hassan, what you called their freedom rights, right, in, uh, in this moment uh, of, of racial discrimination and segregation that really kind of engulfed the entire nation. You know, one of the things that I think people uh, misunderstand is what black people were doing or rather not doing while the white professional leagues were segregated. In other words, black people aren't just sitting around looking through the fence like, hey, when are we going to get our turn? Like they are forming their own leagues uh, and not just the Negro leagues, but, you know, tennis leagues, golf leagues. Derek, could you say a little bit about African-Americans coming together and institution building around professional sports? Yeah, I think in the in the broader historical context, the way that I, I teach this uh, and approach this this subject is to think about that. As I mentioned earlier, black folks in this in this nadir, they just don't long for for civil rights. They organize for civil rights. They organize against lynching, and they do this through a variety of organizations: the the NAACP, the Niagara Movement, the Urban League, the UNIA, uh, the National Council of Negro Women. These organizations function to challenge segregation, but also give black folks opportunities to move their lives forward in the in the in the context of segregation. And so the sports world is no different. I talk about this more broadly as a sporting congregation. Folks who are fans, sports writers, athletes uh, come together to help build networks that create and sustain sports organization. Whether it's the ATA, the American Tennis Association, or it's the Negro Leagues, right? These leagues and teams and organizations give young and old an opportunity to develop their love of the game, uh, to write about it, and to develop kind of a sports world and a sports experience that is um, outside of the purview and even sometimes the desire of integrated sports. And so for for black life in the midst of segregation, they're not just looking through the dot hole, hoping and pining for an opportunity. They are building, organizing and using their own wealth, their money, uh, time and energy to build a variety of sporting institutions. And it's a range of of people who are involved in this. Right. I mean, so the American Tennis Association, you have black elite. Right. I mean, black middle class organizing that. And that's different than connecting with gangsters and the Negro Leagues. I mean, it's two different classes of folk, right? But they're all involved. 
Well, yes and no. So I think about this in two ways, right? Like uh, if we look at an organization like the ATA founded in 1916, it is founded by the black elite. It includes uh, Tally Holmes, who is a graduate of Dartmouth College. It includes Lucy Diggs Slow, who is a graduate of Howard University and a founder of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Right? It includes this kind of level of elite folks who have taken to tennis, right, which, you know, regardless of race is a middle upper middle class uh, sport. Um, You have that on one hand. But on the other hand, you have the Negro Leagues that includes not only college graduates, but folks who never went to college in the first place. Teams are owned by gangsters, people who ran numbers uh, in their communities. At the same time, those men who ran numbers also imagined themselves as part of the upper class, right? Mm-hmm. And so they would play golf. They would go to the country club. They would play tennis, right? And so I think there's a lot more interaction and interfacing between what we think of as these two classes, um, in part because, you know, segregate, segregation really forced upper, middle, and lower classes together in ways that are often hard for us to see in modern America. And then, of course, the colleges begin to organize. Yeah. What they begin to do by 1920s is really organize themselves into athletic conferences. And so we get the CIAA, right? We get the the SIAC. We get the Midwestern Athletic Conference. We get the SWAC, right? These conferences are being developed between 1916 and 1922, and that allow for black colleges to now play regular schedules, to have rivalries, to develop homecoming games, to develop the classic, which is instrumental to our understanding of collegiate sports in the South among black folks. There is nothing bigger than, you know, black college homecoming, Right. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to get on this podcast and say which one of those homecomings is uh, the best (laughs) uh, because that is a fight. Um, You know, know, my friend Jelani Favors, who I believe was on the previous episode, will tell you that it's North Carolina A&T and my brother who's a right Aggie (laughs) pride. My brother, who is a Florida A&M grad, will tell you that you should come down to to Tallahassee. Um, And then every other person claims that their college homecoming is the best. And I think it's such an important part of the legacy, right? Today, we can still see the legacy of these sporting congregations in black college life. When we look at the Bayou Classic, when we look at the Orange Blossom Classic or the Florida Classic or the Magic City Classic, between those and homecoming, we really get a taste of this longer sports legacy that emerges at the height of segregation. This is Teaching Heart History, and I'm Bethany J. We prepare detailed show notes for each episode of this podcast so that you can use what you learn here in the classroom. You'll find relevant resources as well as a full transcript complete with links to materials mentioned by our guests. You can find them at learningforjustice.org slash podcasts. Let's return now to Hassan's conversation with Derek White and Lewis Moore. Lou, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your favorite movie of all time is the Bingo Long Traveling All-Star, uh, and that if it was redone, that you would try to cast yourself as Bingo Long, played by Billy D. Williams. Yes. I mean, I think it's appropriate uh, for Lou Moore. But could, could you explain to our audience, not just what the Negro Leagues were, but why students 
should know about the Negro Leagues and what that can tell them, not only about the black experience at the time, but about America at the time? Yeah, no, that's that's a fabulous question. It's something I, I wrestle with too, right? How do you put this in context? And and one of the things I, I say, you know, to my students is black people have been playing baseball since baseball has been played, right? And we can see this going back to the to the eighteen fifties, right? Black folks forming their own teams. So even before the Negro Leagues, you have, you know, startups, like leagues try to start a Southern League in eighteen eighty six. Can you imagine what 20 little over 20 years after the end of slavery you have a, a teams in these major cities trying to start something trying to figure out how do we get from city to city and build this black business because these white folks aren't letting us play and we see the struggle with that whether it is lodging which the same we'll see the same struggle in the 20s and 30s and 40s right when there's the negro leagues uh whether it's getting your ballparks um and then ultimately this league fails and uh, another one that starts up the year later fails and then you get what we commonly call the Negro Leagues. This Negro League exists because of the Great Migration. Rube Foster, when he's thinking about getting this league together, it's late 1919, and he's he's doing this at a time when black folks are moving from the from the fields, you know, to the factory. And he points this out. He doesn't use the word Great Migration because that's something we we use. But he's you know he's using the black press. And he's writing this letter about what's so hard about black baseball, but why his league's going to work. And one of the things he points out, he says, look, Chicago, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Kansas City, all these major cities, there's a lot of black folks there, right? And and they have they have time and they have money, a little bit of money, right? Because they're working at these factories. He's saying this thing's going to work. Right. So teaching about the Negro Leagues gives us an opportunity, a window into uh, the great migration. The other thing it does, it, it allows us to have a conversation about, you know, internally what black folks are doing, right, when faced with Jim Crow. And part of that, it's it's the whole this Marcus Garvey idea. It's this Booker T. Washington idea. We're going to build our own. And one of the primary sources I use to show the students when we talk about um, the Negro Leagues is, there's this black newspaper in Kansas City, and it's it's opening weekend for the Kansas City Monarchs in the Negro National League. And they're talking about, finally, we have this great institution to show white people. Because white people don't think we could do these things. They don't think we could organize. But we have a league. We have a team now. And they see it as a way to prove to white Americas, Americas that they can make it. I remember growing up and my grandmother used to talk about how her and my grandfather uh, would go to Negro League games. And she talked more about it than than he did. And one of the things that talking about sports during this era actually allows us to do is to talk about the experiences of women and not just as spectators. Because the reason why Grandma Lee, my grandmother, loved talking about going to the Negro League games is because she was an athlete. She was a gymnast in high school, never went to college, but you also see women playing college sports. But then they also had their own professional leagues during this time. There, could you say a little bit about women athletes in professional leagues, in the uh, black college leagues, but then also by the time we get to 1932 and 1936, the Olympics as well? 
I think one of the things that's really interesting to think about how the sports world and the and, and American culture uh, writ large uh, defines uh, sporting possibilities for women, right? At some point, uh, sports are seen as something for women more broadly as a way of developing a kind of healthy lifestyle. And so we see, for instance, women's colleges in New England have, you know, baseball teams, not softball, but baseball teams. We see uh, uh, women playing uh, basketball. Uh, we see them playing a number of other sports, tennis, golf as well, uh, uh, on their college campuses. Um, but as sports become competitive for women, sports becomes uh, seen as something that is unladylike. Uh, we see white women, especially middle class white women, rapidly removing themselves from the sports world, especially in sports like basketball and keeping their interest in, I think, kind of timid um, uh, uh, elite sports, golf, sometimes tennis. What we also see is the, the broader American public really kind of pull back their support. But black communities supported competitive athletic sports for women. You see black colleges developing black uh, basketball teams in the South. At the very same time, we see black football classics. We see black basketball teams, men and women's being founded. The Philadelphia YWCA creates a black basketball team uh, starring a woman by the name of Ora Washington, who is in the, in the Pro Basketball Hall of Fame. Uh, or Washington will shift from an amateur team to a professional team. She plays for the Philadelphia Tribunes, who then tour all over the country playing other women's teams and sometimes men's teams and being equally successful. And so there becomes this avenue in these black sporting congregations for women, uh, opportunities for them to compete at very high levels. And this really sets the stage for them, uh, for opportunities at the international level when it comes to uh, the Olympic Games. And so we see women, African-American women in particular, getting an opportunity uh, to go to the Olympic trials. Several make the team but are not allowed to run in 1932 and 1936, right? It takes time for them to be seen as part of the American athletic infrastructure but the sporting congregation in black communities set the stage so that by the 1940s 1950s in women's track and field in the sprinting events many of the participants are coming out of hbcus lou by the time we get to the 1920s and in the, the 1930s the, the the color line is, is is pretty deeply entrenched what are the expectations of black athletes when it comes to them challenging the color line yeah that's no that's a great question this idea of pushing forward into integration is going to come up with joe lewis right his handlers said you know what you have the ability to fight for the heavyweight championship but you have to be the quote-unquote good negro we're going to show pictures of you reading the Bible. We're going to talk about how you live clean. We're going to get you married, right? They actually force him to get married to a black woman. You know, none of this Jack Johnson, right, stuff. None of this single man going from, from place to place. And, you know, can't be in public with white women. This is what you're going to need to do, right, to, to push forward into an integrated space. You know, long story short, 1937, Joe Lewis wins the heavyweight championship of the world. 1938, though, this is when Joe Lewis, for a lot of people, becomes actually an American, 
right? He's, for a lot of folks, he is the first black American to just be American, right? And actually, there's a book that comes out in, what, 1944. It's literally called Joe Louis American. And that's because he has this fight against Max Schmeling, a German fighter. We see this fight in 1938 between Max Schmeling and Joe Louis as America versus Germany. Lewis had lost to him a couple years prior, but this time, spoiler alert, he defeats him in Yankee Stadium, and Joe Lewis becomes this American hero. And then, you know, after Pearl Harbor, Lewis gives up his career. I mean, imagine that. You're the top fighter in the world. You're making, you know, tons of money. You donate over a million dollars in fight purses to the U.S. military. And then after that, you join the military, and people see him as a hero. He's the black Captain America, right? I mean, is that, is that safe <laughs> to say? I mean, yeah, he's being portrayed in that. I, I don't want to get sued by Marvel, but he you know he is. Right? <laughs> but but yeah, like he is. He's that guy, right? He's 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 in the military, and the great dichotomy in this is that he's still in a Jim Crow military. Mm-hmm. Right, right. The other sad part is, is that he gives about a million dollars to to the U.S. military. Right. What happens though is he owes tax money. The problem is, is that he's not making any money during the World War II, but he still owes tax money from when he was a heavyweight champion in 1941. And the, the U.S. government never forgives him. And so he's heavyweight until, what, 1949? From about 46 to 49, he's broke. Every fight he has, tax man comes it takes out their cut, and then he's got to start over again. It's it's a it's a tragic story, right? As as you said, somebody who was who was thought of as the black Captain America at the time. But Joe Lewis is so important to this conversation uh, because he actually sets the tone for what can come next: professional football, baseball. Other sports, you'll start to see a little bit more black athletes, like post-World War II, like teams that had like one, and then there were like three or four. They're allowing their black players to play. Before that, they would sit them out. So there's starting to be a change going on in sports. I'm always fascinated to put Jesse Owens into conversation with this idea of black athletes. What should we do with, what should we do with Je- Jesse Owens, the Buckeye Bullet? And, and not only how he's treated, but how he chooses to walk through the world politically afterward. Derek? I think, I think, the, I think Jesse Owens, that his, his talent, right, converges with the need and desire of, in this case, Ohio State's wanting to win track and field, uh, being competitive, that they offer him a scholarship, even though he had gone to, you know, a, an industrial high school that didn't necessarily prepare him for collegiate work, uh, even by those, uh, even by the standards of the day. Derek Bell, the great legal scholar, talks about racial convergence, right, when he talks about civil rights agendas. And I think that sports is a really clear space where we can see racial convergence, right, that opportunities like that Joe Lewis receives or Jack uh, uh, or Jesse Owens receives, that these converge with broader national goals. And because they fit a broader agenda, they are able to give a particular kind of space that someone like Jack Johnson or even the Negro Leagues could never kind of receive at an earlier period. I also know 
that even though Jesse Owens uh, is extremely marginalized, he doesn't he's not allowed to live on campus. Um, he uh, is never really a, a clear fit. He finds community inside of Ohio State. I think it's always important to note uh, that he is a member of uh, a black fraternity, in this case, Alpha Phi Alpha. I think that that's an important dynamic. I think one of the things that's really interesting is that there's a moment in the 1936 Olympic trials where him and Ralph Metcalf uh, and one other person, uh, they're all competing for this spot on this the Olympic team, and they're all members of the same fraternity, right? Even at predominantly white institutions, black athletes are forming relationships and connections with other black students who are also trying to survive the institution at the same time. When we get to Jesse Owens after the Olympics, you know, track and field is still an amateur sport. And there's no clear way for uh, anyone in track and field to make professional money. And so Jesse Owens, how does he translate his success in the 1936 Olympics into a career? And I don't think there's a path forward. Uh, and he he very much struggles with this uh, most famously racing horses for money, almost as a sideshow. He feels like sports gave him an opportunity to see the world, an opportunity to form relationships. And so he still saw that as a positive relationship, whereas others saw his life as being dehumanized, that sports had, like, he had allowed white sporting institutions to use him, and he never received the kind of support that he needed. The other thing about, about uh, Jesse, this idea that the sports gave him everything, he used it in the 1960s to push back up against, you know, black athletes who were who were who were using their platform right to to fight american racism and he was very clear about this and at one point in 1963 um jackie robinson and floyd patterson who's the ex-heavyweight champion just loses to sonny liston they go to birmingham and jesse owens makes a comment like why are you there you're making trouble for everybody and jackie like claps back for lack of better term to him publicly about look you know we might have it made but others don't, and that's why I'm fighting. Jesse Owens writes a book called Black Think. He's, you know, uh, against groupthink. He he talks about how great sports have been for black Americans, but then he uses a lot of time to go after this potential boycott um, of uh, Olympians and, and spends a lot of time, you know, talking about Tommy Smith. This is before the Olympics. Um, but then ultimately, you know, a couple of years later, he realizes he's wrong. And I think part of it is in 68, when some of these guys are getting kicked out, like John Carlos and Tommy Smith and, and Jesse Owens is like, look, I'll get you a job. And somebody shoots back to him. It's like, look, when you came back, you, you had to race horses. We still have no opportunities. And I think that that resonated with him ultimately. Right. When when he, you know, a couple of years later admits that that he was wrong. Yeah, no, I think I think it's important to understand that black folks don't all think the same, that there's a lot of tension, a lot of conversation, a lot of dissension, uh, conflict as much as consensus on many of these kinds of issues and the role of sports therein. You know, one of the questions I like to ask um, my students when we sort of walk our way through the through the 1930s and then again, I ask them separately in, in, in the late 1960s. Uh, is should black athletes have participated in the 1936 Olympics? Not only would it be problematic to uh, participate in an Olympics 
that is being held in a racist nation, but should they be participating for a racist nation in an Olympics <laughs> in a racist nation? And it always leads to a fascinating discussion because some people, some of the students will will fall back on, you know, this is what they've been training for all their life. Right. Uh, and then others will be like, wait a minute. You know, what does it mean? Right. Uh, what does it mean if I win? And what, if it, what does it mean if I don't go? Uh, and so to hear them sort of wrestle with the the possibilities and then the consequences and then the impact of uh, participating or not not participating is always a really fruitful and, and, and thought provoking dialogue and conversation. Yeah. Can I jump in here? Is, is this where I jump in? <laughs> no, I, you know, I, yeah, I like that question too, but you know, these athletes, it's like, you know, like the students say, this is what they train for, but Jesse's very clear, even at 36. And, and I think every black athlete is like, I have to prove a point, right? Uh, you know, on the one hand, look, America itself is racist. They bring that up. Right. But they also say, this is our opportunity. Right. And, and I think a, a number in the black press say the same thing. It's, you know, there's a battle on the black press. Should they go? Should they say, and ultimately, that idea that you go and you prove a point for us, right? Not only against, you know, Hitler's racism, but to, you know, to represent your country and hopefully we'll get something out of it, right? And this is how how bad it is for black Americans, right? That that their hope is that Jesse Owens wins and they get treated better. When we talk about this idea, should we go, should we stay? 1968 Olympics, John Carlson, Tommy Smith, who had the same, should I go, should I stay? They knew that's their platform. That's when people listen to you, when when all the cameras are on you, because those cameras are going to be at the Olympics. They're not staying home in Cleveland to talk to you about race. They're going to they're going to follow the athletes who are performing. You know, we've been talking about Jim Crow sports and we've mentioned on occasion uh, Jackie Robinson. Uh, Jackie Robinson is usually uh, the starting point and the end point for discussions and conversations of black sports, black athletes during the Jim Crow era. And we just talk about that, that one moment in April uh, of 1947 with him breaking the color line. So Lou, what should we be doing with Jackie Robinson? Oh, is this a time shameless plug? We will win the day. My book. No, um, don't edit that out, by the way. <laughs> uh, I, you know, Jackie's a fascinating story. You say, what should we do with him? I use him to talk about this idea of activist athlete, right? He is somebody we see stand up in front of Congress. He tells Congress about police brutality, right? And the need to end police brutality and writes several times throughout his life about the problem with police brutality. He talks about, you know, at the end of his life about why he doesn't stand for the national anthem. I know it's a controversial subject, but he doesn't stand for the national anthem. I mean, Jackie Robinson, this person whose number is retired in America's game, did not stand for the national anthem because of the way America not only treated him, but treated other black people. And, and Jackie has one of my favorite sayings. He says, look, I'm, I'm famous, but if the lowest black person is not free, then I'm not free. And that's how he approached his life. That's how he approached civil rights. And that's how we could use Jackie. You could use it as a story about civil rights and you could use it as a story about the activist athlete. If you wanted to get into conversations about athletes today, you could use Jackie Robinson as that jump off point. And we would be remiss if we didn't mention uh, as well his wife, Rachel Robinson, who was a who was and is still alive, a, a force in her own right, not only in supporting serving as a support system for him, 
but leading the Jackie Robinson Foundation, uh, working in a World War II uh, airplane factory as a riveter. I mean, just a fascinating life. I mean, so wherever you see these points of entry uh, for talking about the experiences of black women uh, through sports or their connection to various athletes, uh, I, I think we should always we should always take it. I always find that the story about Jackie Robinson's brother, Mac Robinson, uh, to be really poignant and important in understanding the not only the possibilities of sports, but the limitations of sports. He saw his brother finish second to Jesse Owens, uh, only to come back to L.A. to serve as a street sweeper. And that 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 athletic success uh, at the Olympics still left him as a marginalized economically in Los Angeles. He would occasionally do his job in his Olympic uniform and uh, just yeah. to remind white folks of how he treated him, treated uh, Yeah. Mm. You know, he didn't get those opportunities. Right. So it's a powerful here. He is, you know, being a street sweeper with USA on his chest. And Jackie always remembered that or USA on his jacket. And, and Jackie always remembered that. That's one of the tremendous struggles that we see. Uh, for all these athletes, especially in the, during this time of segregation, is uh, how do they transition out of out of the sports world, right? You know, for these sports, especially for these amateur sports, it becomes very difficult for for these athletes. Uh, Lou always talks about how uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith get tryouts for professional football because they're you know they're not only marginalized in the athletic world, but at, even in 1968, there's still no uh, professional track and field opportunities at the same rate that can, they could feed their families in, and so there's always this tension that that someone like Jesse Owens face or Mac Robinson face uh, that's slightly, slightly different than uh, Jackie Robinson or Joe Lewis who have professional opportunities able to make money. I think that's an important distinction uh, that, you know, that amateur professional split um, and what that means for uh, opportunity, what that also means for them, uh, their, their positionality on activism. Learning for Justice has a special opportunity just for educators. After listening to this episode, you can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development. All you have to do is go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD. PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. Then enter the unique code word for this episode, congregation, all lowercase. You'll also find a link in the show notes. It's a great way to get even more out of teaching hard history. I think one of the things that is important to include in the conversation of this era is, is exactly that, Derek, the, the financing. I mean, now, you know, our, our minds immediately go to the mega athlete making literally, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars, signing a quarter of a billion dollar contracts. Uh, Aura Washington, who you mentioned, the, the, the superstar uh, black woman tennis player and basketball player, I mean, she's working as a domestic, you know, mm -hmm. while she's playing and, and, you know, literally up until, uh, you know, her, close to her, close to her death. And even and even Jackie Robinson. Right. I mean, who's this, you know, amateur, super, you know, well-known, better football player, better track star, long jumper, uh, you know, has to leave UCLA in his senior year going to play, you know, signing professional football, semi-pro professional football contracts because he can't afford it. Doesn't play baseball for five years, comes back you know, has these other possibilities. And it's basically like, yo, can I get a trial with the Monarchs because the Negro Leagues will pay, right? I mean, the <laughs> exactly. idea of, you know, the, the, the 
the money incentive, right? I mean, how do how do how do I how do I make a living out of this talent that I have is just fundamentally different than perhaps, perhaps. Well, I don't mean to say fundamentally different. It is a challenge. Um, you know, then and it's, it's a challenge now. Uh, when we think about college athletes, you know, you know and, and the struggles some of them have at, at, at some of the top tier programs. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and I think that's also complicated by, you know, the sports that we think of as professional now were not professional during the era of segregation. So we take someone like Althea Gibson. Althea Gibson was a, a tennis player, you know, born in South Carolina, raised in Harlem, uh, you know, was identified at a at a junior tournament at the ATA. Uh, and she was taken in by uh, a pair of doctors. They were sports fans, tennis fans, and saw her supreme talent and talked to her parents and said, look, we, we want to give this, this young lady an opportunity to maximize her tennis talent. Uh, she was like 18 years old or something uh, when she goes back to high school as a sophomore and she graduates in Virginia uh, at almost 20 years old in high school. But she goes to Florida A&M, this part of this sporting congregation. But Althea Gibson is the first person to to play in the U.S. Open. She's the first black woman to play at Wimbledon. She's the first black woman to win the U.S. Open and Wimbledon. And one of the things I think that's interesting is that she – you know, they wanted her to be Jackie Robinson. We talk about this quite a bit uh, in the in the scholarship. They wanted her to to talk about the civil rights movement, to use her position, her platform as a racial pioneer to do that. And she was not comfortable doing that. She did, you know, whereas Jesse Owens used his position to to try to push people back. She just refused to to engage in uh, this kind of uh, activism. Um, but I think it's also telling on the back end of her career, once she retired, she's like, what am I to do? Am I going to go teach high school after I have traveled the globe playing tennis? Yeah, but not really earning any real money at it. You know, like, you know, like these are the kinds of challenges that that amateur professional sports uh, split, at least in my mind, uh, I think require teachers to pay attention to. So it's not as simple as you know, Jesse Owens was making this money and he chose to do this, that the, the, the professional opportunities in particular sports was much more difficult and, and, and actually non-existent. Yeah. And, and, you know, with Althea, I mean, one way she had to make money was play with the globe charters, right? I mean, think about this, you're the best tennis player in the world and you got to play with the globe, heart of globe trotters, right? You got to play basketball, the heart of globe trotters. You got to try to put out an album. Um, but she does become the first black woman to uh, be, be a professional golfer, right? This is the type of athlete, uh, that we're dealing with. Um, and so she does, uh, become a professional golfer. There's no professional tennis. And, and, you know, later on in life, she, she's discovered broke and, and destitute and people have to raise money for her. Um, they, they, you know, they, they forgot about her. Um, it's one of these sad, um, stories about you know american sports how, how you know she was a hero and then people just forgot about her when she's not in the limelight and she she really struggled you know in, in what ways do you use uh, black newspapers um in the classroom that teachers can use um to sort of get at some of these issues the issues that we have been talking about um so far well, I use them in, in two ways, at least. I think that we can use the black newspaper coverage and compare it to white newspaper coverage of someone like uh, Jack Johnson, 
Right. We can see the ways in which many black, but not all black newspapers, laud uh, Jack Johnson's victory, especially over Tommy Burns, as one that is broader for the race. Uh, and that white newspapers see this, uh, this loss in, in fraught, racialized terms. Uh, you can also look at black newspapers as where we get an inroad in understanding how sports operates in black communities. We get tennis scores. We get Negro League scores. We get bold classics. We get sports writers who are writing about, um, you know, the various sports and commenting on the way racism functions and is rife in the sporting world. Um we learn about the black players at predominantly white institutions like Bill Bell at Ohio State or Jesse Owens long before long before they become international uh, or household names. Black newspapers are, are, are capturing their kind of every move and giving us insights to their experiences. And I would say black newspapers give us an insight to what folks call the politics of respectability. You know, everyone didn't root for Jack Johnson because once they they saw him as a, a problem, they were worried about, you know, now they're all going to think of us this way. Or or if you look way back when boxing wasn't, you know, popular, wasn't legal, there was in the 1880s, black newspapers would tell local blacks to stay away from this. This makes us look bad. The other thing, as, as Derek brings up, these black athletes in white spaces, black newspapers love, you know, rooting for a Joe Lewis, a Jesse Owens, um, a, a black college player in a white at a, you know, at a white school, because for them, this is the barometer. How are they treating this person? Because if you could cheer for Jackie, you could cheer for Joe, you could cheer for Jesse, you could celebrate me too. If his white teammates can be with them, then you could hire me in this spot. And so many black newspapers, especially around World War II era, um, are looking at sports as that end into society. If you're looking for free online sources, Chronicling America, Chronicling America has newspapers up till what, 1922 for free, several of them. I believe the Washington Bee is in there. There's a, a local black newspaper from Iowa in there. The Broad X from Chicago is in there. There's a black newspaper, I want to say, from Tulsa still in there. If anybody needs like sources, just just you could reach out to me. I have tons of, you know, um, editors or political cartoons that I use. And I've always enjoyed when you post uh, various newspaper articles, you share them on Twitter at LouMore12. Uh, so be sure to follow because you can get as many resources there uh, as you can from, from, from any library for sure. I'm thinking about sources here at the University of Kentucky, we have uh, a, a fantastic one of the best oral history collections. Uh, uh, and we have a huge collection on the desegregation of Major League Baseball that includes a series of uh, oral histories with players, uh, personnel who are essential in desegregating. I had my students this semester uh, listen to an interview with Larry Doby, who was the second 
black player <laughs> to desegregate baseball who played for the Cleveland Indians. Uh, and it was a very fascinating story about his life playing for the Newark Eagles and the Negro Leagues and how that provided an opportunity. And I think that to hear these men, uh, both as administrators in the Major League Baseball, as sports writers, as well as players, talk about their experiences in their own words, in their own voice, is a very powerful uh, opportunity for students uh, to really learn about the, the context of, of the desegregation of, of Major League Baseball. So both of you have talked about so Jackie Robinson being very vocal, talking about the importance of uh, fighting uh, for civil rights. Joe Lewis, um, Jack Johnson in his own way, right, being that 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 example, that exemplar of of black freedom, black defiance. And every single one of them at various points was told to shut up and dribble. I'm wondering uh, about the connections that can be made between the experiences of black athletes in the past and what black athletes have been experiencing in the present and, 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 and specifically uh, in the post-George Floyd era. Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, I actually think I would extend it back to to Trayvon Martin, 2012, whose whose tragic murder I think set off what we have now as scholars define as the Black Lives Matter era and moment. <clears throat> and the reason I think that that Trayvon Martin's uh, 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 tragic death uh, it intersects with sports in real ways is that it happened on the night of the NBA All Star Game in 2012. And that NBA players, most notably the Miami Heat and other teams, really kind of were some of the first kinds of examples in this modern moment, right, where we saw these athletes who are now signing contracts worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars use their the, the stage of sports to talk about uh, police brutality, to you talk about violence. And we've seen this occur in ebbs and flows over the last decade, kind of culminating in the into the summer of 2020 when we saw around the tragic death of George Floyd that the NBA and the WNBA had taken the lead and and really talking about the intractable ways in which racism still infects uh, American life. And what makes this moment so, I think, poignant is that it comes on the heels of almost two decades or more of black athletes, uh, especially the largest and most successful black athletes, uh, being, uh, uh, you know, surprisingly quiet on these issues. Um, And so in the 90s, you know, we were told to be like Mike, but that meant you know, drinking Gatorade and wearing Hanes and and Nikes and not talking about the L.A. riots, right? Uh, Magic had a million-dollar smile. He didn't use his uh, charisma to to discuss Rodney King or Latisha Harlins in 1992. So, so this this moment beginning in 2012 represents, a, I think, a fundamental shift. Uh, in the ways in which uh, black athletes in particular, but all athletes have used their platform to discuss racism. And it harkens back to a much older era, one of which 
Jackie Robinson, Paul Robeson, Muhammad Ali, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, and others uh, were active in using uh, uh, sports as a vehicle to talk about racism and race relations. Yeah, that's that's perfectly said, and and I'll just say that there's a direct line to someone like a Joe Lewis and and, and LeBron James. You know, Joe Lewis is heavyweight. His last years, he gets out the military, heavyweight champion of the world. Between 1946 and 1948, where he's still champion, he's he's talking a lot about you know fighting against Jim Crow, and he realizes the best way to do that is with the vote. Now, if you're black in the South, you know you don't have the vote, right? And, and as you outlined, you know, really great in, in, in your book, um, but he still understands that this is this is the way. This is how you change Jim Crow. This is how you 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 change that peonage. This is how you you fight all these things th- through the vote. And and we'll see in the 2020, you know, this post George Floyd era. What does LeBron do? Right, he starts more than a vote. He 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 gets athletes together to 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 help register people, to open up sporting arenas, to vote. Um, and if you look at women from the WNBA and the more than a vote in combination, helping to get, you know, uh, Warnock elected in the senator. And really, it does change the course of American history, right? It, it is the reason why recently you're allowed to get an infrastructure bill, right? It is someone like Joe seeing the importance of vote, LeBron James really carrying that mantle, whether he knows it or not. Last question, lightning round. Uh, Lou Moore, greatest black athlete of all time. Oh man, you know for that answer, w- read we will win the day. No, uh, uh, <laughs> gosh, gosh. Besides <laughs> Dominique Wilkins and Eric Davis, oh, uh, oh, probably Joe Lewis. Jesus. You know, so it goes Dominique and Eric are on the same plane, and then Joe Lewis. Gotcha, Derek. Same question. Greatest black athlete of all time. Ooh, greatest black athlete of all time. Spends on how, uh, I'm gonna go with Kareem. Mm. Mm. I just Don't think that why Kareem? Why Kareem? from New York? Don't do that because because no, it sounds from New York. Like this is no, I'm not. Do- I, <laughs> Don't give well, him that. Think, well, I just think that like uh, in this era of of LeBron and Michael Jordan, Last Dance, uh, Scottie Pippen throwing himself into the into the greatest conversation, uh, the greatest of all time conversation. Uh, I think that one of the things that I quietly remind students that there's never been a player more dominant than Kareem from like middle school through year 15 in the NBA. Mm. 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 <laughs> That's just on the court. And we think about off the court, the kind of uh, activism and intelligence, even now calling out uh you know, athletes and policy in America that, that Kareem deserves, I think, a higher place of honor uh, in our in our legacy in this greatest of all time kind of conversation. Um, and uh, and and while he's still with us, I think we should not only give continue to give him his flowers, but to give, you know, to honor him. And I think he deserved if anybody deserved a 10 part documentary, uh, mm. it was that guy. Um mm. As I said to my students, would say I was like Michael Jordan was not in no movie with Bruce Lee. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know the other thing about Kareem, real quick, and he loves history though too. And he loves Black history, right? And so yeah, he yeah. he, I mean, he writes about the 1920s and, and the Harlem Renaissance. I believe he has a book on the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, mm-hmm. He he put out a documentary on Black 
um, soldiers in the American Revolution, right? Like this is yeah, that is something we don't even talk about in mainstream. Right? Like right, and, and right. it was like, like let's you know let's make this documentary. I wish it would it would play more. I never even got a chance to see it because I you know you know I'm balling on the budget. You know, um, I, I believe it's like the History Channel. My cable doesn't carry that. I don't have Ohio State money. Um, but yeah, no, Kareem's, Kareem's a good one. And people, you know, in the era of championships, people forget he won just as much as Mike and he's got three college championships, right? And right. he was like the best, uh, high school player in, in the nation. Yeah. Good point. Derek, Lou, I can't thank you guys enough. This has been fantastic. This has been enlightening. Uh, and this is exactly why I couldn't wait for this episode. Thank you, brothers. Thank you. Thank you. Lewis Moore is a professor of history at Grand Valley State University. He is the author of two books, We Will Win the Day, The Civil Rights Movement, The Black Athlete, and The Quest for Equality, and I Fight for a Living, Boxing and the Battle for Black Manhood, 1880-1915. Derek E. White is an associate professor of history and African-American and Africana studies at the University of Kentucky. He is the author of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football, as well as The Challenge of Blackness, The Institute of the Black World, and Political Activism in the 1970s. Be sure to listen to their podcast, The Black Athlete, where you can learn even more about the history of sports and race. Teaching Hard History is a podcast from Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center helping teachers and schools prepare students to be active participants in a diverse democracy. Learning for Justice provides free teaching materials about slavery, reconstruction, the civil rights movement, and more. You can find award-winning films and classroom-ready texts at learningforjustice.org. Most students leave high school without an understanding of the Jim Crow era and its continuing relevance. This podcast is part of an effort to change that. In our fourth season, we put Jim Crow under the spotlight, examining its history and lasting impact. Thanks to Drs. White and Moore for sharing their insights with us. This podcast was produced by Mary Quintus and senior producer Shay Shackelford. Russell Gregg is our associate producer. Music Reconstructed is produced by Barrett Golding. And Corey Collins provides content guidance. Amelia Gregg is our intern. Kate Schuster is the series creator. And our managing producer is Miranda LaFond. If you like what you've heard, please share it with your friends and colleagues and let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always appreciate your feedback. I'm Dr. Bethany J, Professor of History at Salem State University and your host for Teaching Hard History.